Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Shannon. And I'm Nick. And we're your co-hosts, and we've been your co-hosts for one full year. (laughs) Right? It's like all of the sound effects. Um, So today is obviously like a super special episode for many reasons, and I'm going to be covering Ditany of Crete which I think is one of the witchiest sounding herbs of mm, all yeah. time. Dittany? Hello. Dittany. It's just like so Harry Potter. Um, and then kind of an OG that when I was looking at the list, I was a little surprised that he's just now coming up, but Anubis. Ooh. Okay. And then I'm doing a Samhain episode. Part duh, though, because that was where we all started. And uh, this year, we're doing a slightly different stant, a slant than what y'all heard last year. We started at Samhain, and now we're here at Samhain. Now we're here at Samhain. Okay. Again. Woo! Right. So since we have completed one whole rotation of the Wheel of the Year, uh, it is time once again to take a look at Samhain, the truly iconic Sabbath that started it all a whole ass year ago. But since it's the second time around, we wanted to bring you a fresh perspective on the ancient roots of this Sabbath rather than lo- uh, focusing on how modern witches honor this occasion. So some of this will be a little rehash of last year. I think with all of them we've done so far, I do a little bit of history, but we're diving in. Uh, we're giving it some context, hopefully. Just because we're rehashing it, I also want to say Nick and I are both better podcasters than we were last year. That's so true. Even if so- like, even if some of it's the same information, I think that it's going to feel fresh. <laughs> yeah. And also that was a year ago. So if you've been listening every week instead of uh, binging and then catching up and then listening every week, uh, then, you know, this will this will have been a, a long time ago for you. So uh, but yeah, second time around, we're looking at history. So some of it will be rehashed. But we're kind of opening up the floor here a little bit on the history stuff. So this Sabbath is handed down to us from Irish mythology. No surprises there. And I, you know what? I am going to side note here because I was so excited that this one had just no surprises for me. Like everything was just like, oh, yeah, that's what I would expect. So it's because it's because we're learning. It is because we're learning. <laughs> Uh, but oh my gosh, uh, well, we, we're having a little anniversary catch up later, but I was I was thinking about that a little bit and I have some thoughts. Um, but uh, this this habit is from Irish mythology and tradition. So uh, the things associated with it are going to be those of the uh, indigenous Gaelic celebrants. Uh, that's really what we're kind of zeroing in on here. And so the furthest back that we know something important was happening during Samhain is, of course, the alignment of Neolithic passage tombs. So if that's on your drinking bingo, Woo! now's the time to drink. Uh, so they, these line up with the sunset on Samhain, uh, some of which date back to the very early years of the first millennium of the current era. So we're talking like two or 300 AD. So, you know, wow. like just like 1700 years ago. Not a huge Jesus. deal. Not a huge deal. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. Uh, but this is also true with Beltane and both of the equinoxes. So we can safely assume that the date of Samhain was a big deal culturally since at least the second or third century. But there's actually quite a few of these passage tombs aligned with Samhain, which points to like like more than others. So there's sort of an intrinsic connection between Samhain and departed ancestors that we can clearly make because you're burying people in mounds and then you're lining them up with this specific day. So, And can I just say... If we've learned anything in the last year, it's that Irish people love mounds. They do love a good love mound. A mound. <laughs> um, but so there's a lot of them that are lined up with Samhain, which is very cool and like good for y'all. So we know it was like an ancestor worship day. And it's kind of one of those where it's like no one really knows exactly when it kind of coalesced into also being the end of the harvest holiday 
So we know uh, from writings in like the 8th and 9th century, like a whole five or 600 years later, that they were doing this um, sort of very end of harvest holiday with the, the ancestor worship and kind of like, was it New Year's or wasn't it? And that's that's where I'm really going to dig in because that's controversial. That is, there's, there is some controversy on whether or not historic Samhain was, was it the Gaelic New Year or was it not? Nick um, goes there though. But we're, Nick's going there on controversy. We're, I, I mean, really, I'm an Aries. I have to dive in. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, it is, uh, it is a known fact that the ancient Gaelic peoples did believe that the veil between our world and the spirit world was very thin on Samhain and Beltane, and these are referred to as the liminal times of year. So really in like the days and weeks leading up to Samhain and following, if you can kind of think of it as like the shadow period of a Mercury retrograde, where it's like, it's getting more and more intense, the, the boundaries between everything is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And then it's really like, so thin you might fall through to the other side <laughs> on the day of. It's like where your Pisces friends live. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, check in on your Pisces friends. Uh, maybe they always. Maybe they did fall through to the other side. Uh, but so, so in this way, though, the celebrations would be similar to those observed on Dia de los Muertos um, or Day of the Dead, where a particular emphasis would be placed on like grave maintenance and honoring the ancestors' spirits and like cleaning up those lovely burial mounds uh the most ancient of those burial mounds would actually only be open to the public during these like grave cleaning rituals um where you know whereas like the more recent dead is you can visit them whenever but but all of the really ancient dead people like the ones that don't have living relatives uh you know those are special those are like closed off you can only go clean those up and make your offerings on Samhain. I mean, I feel like if you've been dead for a long time, you deserve a little bit of fucking peace and quiet. I That's kind of what I'm thinking. It's like, you know, yeah. let's put some guards up here. We Leave them alone. These are people who also hardcore believed in ghosts. So I think there was a lot of, please do not get us all fucking haunted. Just leave them alone. That's, that's a good rule to live by. Please don't get us fucking haunted. I mean, I, it's a good rule, um, especially this time of year. So, but yeah, so we're 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 kind of thinking about Samhain. We're thinking about like it's about dead people. At some point, it's also the end of the harvest. Um, so we're just gonna put a pin in that. Uh, that first and foremost. It's it's respect. It's very solemn. It's about the dead, right? So it's very somber. So it's it's but it's first and foremost an uh, ancestor worship holiday, and then everything else is kind of an attachment to that original holiday, which actually brings me to the whole is it New Year's thing. So there's a lot of scholarly debate that revolves around Samhain, which is whether or not the original Gaelic peoples really viewed this as it was later described as Celtic New Year. And this is definitely one where they don't just come right out and say it for us anywhere. Uh, Druids famously not liking to write things down. Uh, but in my humble opinion, and uh, because it is controversial, you do have to pick a side. Uh, I think it is. I think it does seem to be the new year. And so I'm going to make a case that Samhain is Celtic New Year. And I'm basing my judgment on uh, just a couple things. So firstly that it was a cultural practice for these people to view the sunset as the beginning of the new day. Not the sunrise, the sunset. So to me, it sort of makes perfect logical sense that these same people would view the symbolic sort of the sunset of the year as New Year's Day because they thought the day began at sunset. So uh, Samhain is also noted in various historical accounts as the most widely celebrated of the Sabbaths, especially in Ireland, but still having like huge popularity in Scotland, in Wales, in the Isle of Man, uh, which is kind of why we refer to it as like a pan-Gaelic kind of thing. Uh, and if we look at 
other cultures in the region. So like the ones that are more in Britain, the Anglo-Saxons, uh, pretty much everyone in mainland Europe, they we can see that their most popular seasonal celebrations were more at Beltane time. And conveniently enough, they also saw the beginning of the day as the sunrise. Um, and, you know, it's like the beginning of spring is kind of like the sunrise of the year. So I, this is all conjecture on my part, uh, but it it adds up to me that it's Gaelic New Year, which brings me to more of like the New Year seeming aspects. I have to say, I'm sold. I feel like this is like really good logic. I also love Samhain being like the witch's New Year nowadays too. So like selfishly, I enjoy it. But like your logic tracks. I feel like, you know, our lawyer Nicholas has convinced many. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I, I hope I've got you convinced. So um, there's other like New Year's aspects to Samhain as it was originally celebrated, though. The first of which is the widespread use of divination techniques as part of the festivals. So last year we talked about how like bobbing for apples came to be associated with this season and how one divination technique specifically involved sort of peeling an apple in one long strip and then throwing it over your shoulder and seeing what letter it formed, this letter supposedly being the first initial of your destined spouse or lover. And this eventually evolved into carving the names of like eligible bachelors and bachelorettes, depending on who was bobbing uh, and kind of getting like a more specific and local readout of who you should marry. Uh, and then you could do a hand fasting and have the one year trial marriage, which we definitely have covered. Uh, and then, you know, you could make it official the following year or have like an easy annulment, no harm done. Uh, another traditional divination technique used on Samhain involved the bonfire itself, because no Gaelic Sabbath can really be complete without a bonfire uh, and rocks. Uh, rocks is the other ingredient here. So for this one, anyone who wanted to could bring a rock. Uh, you do have to bring your own rock from home. We will not be providing any. Uh, so that would represent you in this form of divination. And all of them would be arranged in a circle around the bonfire, right? There's one bonfire. That's very important as well. And the next morning, if any of the rocks were disturbed or if a coal had popped out at a particular rock, it would indicate that that person would not be living all the way through the next year. Very spooky, very bad omen. So, you know, I was like, uh, you should probably do the rock thing before you commit to doing like a hand fasting with your with your apple buddy. Yeah, like maybe let's start by figuring out if you're going to be dead before that hand fasting period's over. Right. Uh, and so speaking of your, your sweetie, another fire-based divination that you could do uh involved another holy food item of course apples representing immortality in the world of the spirits but um hazelnuts so in this version this is like like you've already got someone in mind romantically speaking and you would set up two hazelnuts to roast near the edge of the bonfire and if they sat still until they were roasted it was a good match for marriage. But if they jumped or popped in any way, then the relationship was doomed. So, um, but I, I was saying that I think like the fact that they're doing all of their like divination for the year also gives this like very big New Year's vibes. Um, and I think, yeah, like fortune telling for the year to come. Uh, they would, I mean, they would also do like haruspices at this time, which is that really gross thing where they cut out the guts of like a sheep and then uh, look at the shapes. And that was kind of done for like the whole village and the crops. But uh, there's all these little personal divinations. Um, I think the New Year's vibe also is coming up in the administration. Ed oh, my God. The administrative way, because... This was also the time when, like, the various kings and lords and all of those people could, like, lay down their differences every couple of Samhain's, specifically every seventh Samhain, 
which sounds like the start of a tongue twister. Yeah, it's like that seems like it needs to be a theater warm up. Right. It's like every seventh Samhain seven serpents something. Uh, <laughs> but no, no, no. So every seventh Samhain, they could lay down their differences uh, and they had to by law uh, to sort of hash out new laws and sign treaties and trade prisoners which is, you know, very cool, very fun. You know, uh, oh, uh, trade me, trade me your prisoners for my prisoners, and uh, but then, okay, this is also, you guys, the traditional time of the hearth relighting, which we talked about last year. We're talking about it this year. It's an important part of it, so you're going to have to deal with it. And so, of course, the analogy of the life giving power of the sun is very present in the hearth relighting. Um, it's also the importance of fire keeping death at bay through the winter because it's now time to really be relying on your hearth fire. But basically you would do like a fall cleansing of your home and extinguish every hearth fire, lantern and candle so that during the festival, the only fire burning in the whole village is like the holy bonfire, right? And then the people would go home at the end of the night they would walk sunwise around their home, which I did look this up, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I could not find a uh, very reliable source on what sunwise means, but I think that's where you start in the east, move to the south, to the west, to the north, like that's the, the circle you're making. Um, if I read that correctly, please feel free to correct me, you guys. But you would walk around your house sunwise, three times, uh, then relight your hearth fire with a torch, preferably made of pine, uh, that you've lit on the bonfire. And then you can light all your candles and lanterns and stuff for your house from there. Uh, and it was like the final energy cleanse before the winter season. And also like a renewal of good luck for the participants and their families for like the whole year ahead. So, which brings me to some of the quirks and superstitions of the original Samhain celebrants that I do feel like are worth mentioning here. Um, so of, you would always, always, always put out plates of food from the feast for your dead ancestors. And um, that's another thing that's sort of controversial is like, obviously you don't go, you, you don't do every day that ancestor that you can think of. I, I, you know, it's like they probably stopped at grandparents. You know? That that gets to be a lot of uh, ghost feasting, if you. Yeah, it's like that gets to be your entire feast budget. Yeah, I mean quickly. these people are on a budget, so I think I think you stop at grandparents. Um, I mean, if you had like a really famous ancestor past that, like someone who was a king or a saint or whatever, you know, like you could keep putting out food for them. But um, but yeah, you know, you're not you're not giving great grandma a plate like you cut off. Um, sorry. But um, anywho, that's a that's a random rabbit traily side note. Uh, but they also did believe that your dead answers at your dead ancestors um, would be joining you at home for the winter. So apparently it is part of this that ghosts get cold and it's like if you're cold, they're cold. Bring them inside. But also, uh, like, everyone would chip in from their food to make sure that even, like, like not just your dead relatives, but also, like, the poor and the homeless and uh, sort of really the people at the bottom are getting, like, a full serving of everything as well. Um, so, you know, everyone from the king or the chief all the way down, they're getting the same food. The dead people are getting the same food. Um, and actually... If the king or the chieftain or whoever did not provide enough food at the Samhain feast to offer not only to the ancestors and the poor, uh, it's a bad omen for the year to come. I, but I mean, that's kind of obvious because it's like that means you're run, you're already running low on food and it's only October. So, uh, yeah, that's a bad omen indeed. No, but uh, so another superstition from this time uh, involved like gates fences, property lines, and anything else that could be seen as a portal, which is funny because I sent you that picture of like the tree portal the other day, Shannon. Um, and I was like, oh. yeah, it like, it's like a tree portal that is like in the shape of a, like a hobbit 
pole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a perfect circle. Um, but here we go. So, uh, but these would have to be avoided at all costs. And if you did have to cross through one of these areas, you would want to make like loud, obnoxious noises. And definitely you would not want to do this alone. And basically you're wanting to ensure that you're scaring away ghosts or mischievous Oshi who might just like snatch you into the spirit world. And as we all know, when you get snatched into the spirit world, it's like a few minutes there. It's like 400 years here and you come back and everyone you've ever known is dead. Um, and also what are cars? And that'd be a cool movie. I'm just saying. Uh, so, but this is also partially where the tradition of costumes is on Halloween is coming from. Because if you dressed up as an ancestor or some type of fae, then they wouldn't bother you. So... You're basically trying to, like, blend in with the the stuff from the spirit world. And then when they do come through to our side, they're like, oh, you're just a ghost, too. Like, hello, fellow ghost. I'll just mind my own business now. Uh, good day to you. And so this is also uh, the the other costume thing, since we're on the subject. Uh, is that comes from OG Samhain, you know, like not the new the new version is like mumming, sword dances, and pantomime horses, respectively. So the mumming and sword dances were like an official part of the Sabbath and would reenact Kukulin's battle with the Fomorians more often than not. And this very epic battle that we've actually talked about a few times here on the show. Uh, is sort of acting as a symbol for the struggle between light and dark, like winter and the sun, good and evil, like the balance of power in the natural world. And then the the pantomime horses, the white mare or the Mary Lude or gray mare uh, being the two most prominent examples, uh, seem to have been sort of like a tangible representation of the spirits, the fae, um, the non-ghost spirits that would come through at this time, and they demanded offerings to keep the world in balance. So, as a side note, I do want to thank our listener Sean for telling me about the Mary Lude because I've seen pantomime horses before, but the Mary Lude is very creepy pantomime horse, and they use a horse skull instead of trying to make it look like a like a live horse. Um, and yeah, it's uh, and it's funny because it's like the horse skull. I oh my god, the lich from Adventure Time. Like, it kind of looks oh. like that. Okay, okay, okay. Um, creepy. It's very creepy. Um, so thank you, Sean, for letting us know. But but costumes are definitely part of it. And if you didn't dress up like a ghost or a fairy or a pantomime horse, apparently. Um, you would maybe just dress up as an ancestor. So you would dress up in like an older school style of dress than uh, whatever era you were doing this in. Because um, keeping in mind, these were celebrated for hundreds of years uh, without interruption. So, and America's only been around for like 250 years. So think about that. And, it's a baby. Uh, it's a baby. Uh, but costumes are definitely part of it. And sort of like a final thing to add that I thought was interesting about OG Samhain. Uh, and there's a lot more that we could have put in here, but we are not made of time. Uh, is that, yes, they did do jack-o'-lanterns made of turnips. They were very spooky. And um, it, they would sort of use it as a totem to ward off uh, the she's, the fays, uh, malevolent ghosts, etc. And uh, yeah, so if anyone wants to let me know uh, if I got Sunwise correctly, because I am genuinely curious, uh, let us know. So I'm really excited about this one. I kind of talked about Ditney of Crete like briefly when I did Oregano a few weeks ago, but Ditney of Crete or Oregonum Dictamus is, uh, I mean, I'm like, you could say dictumness, but dictumness sounds funner. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, it's it's like Dick and Mr. Tumnus put together, right? So, 
you're never, it's it's always going to be funny to say a little dirty um but the name i feel like didn't of crete is just like super witchy sounding and again like when i covered it t- with oregano it's like it's a very close like relative to it but it really does have its like own special history and its like own place in our practices and in our hearts so onward um Dittany of Crete plants have actually been around since uh Minoan times which is roughly the Bronze Age so a little while we're talking about some old shit today uh it's been used for everything from cosmetics to a cure for snake bites which we don't recommend using it as a snake bite cure um the plant has also got so many interesting names including Dictamo Merkel dick name, um, hot marjoram, winter sweet, and Aranda. And Aranda means love, and it got this namesake in sort of an interesting way. It's it's Greek. Um, so Dittany of Crete is said to symbolize love, but since this plant prefers like rocky, treacherous environments, harvesting it used to be like kind of risky. So sometimes young lovers would go on adventures to harvest the plant together. And they were called Arondades or Love Seekers. Um, Cute. Wow. Darling. Right? So precious. So anyone who wants to court me from now on has to do that. Yeah. I feel like that is the bare minimum. The bare minimum. So bare minimum. Come at me, boys. <laughs> also, um, little known author Aristotle... Uh, once wrote about the herb and his treatise, The History of Animals, where he spent a bit of time on a goat tangent, because apparently goats wounded by arrows were said to eat the um, were said to eat the herb. And then once once they ingested it, it would apparently like push the arrows out of them somehow. OK, uh, right. So he. He made the logical jump that that would work with people, too. So if you get shot with an arrow, just eat a bunch of Dittany of Crete, and then it'll just get shoved out. Uh, it'll get shoved out by all of that Dittany of Crete. I, again, I mean, we're not doctors, but I wouldn't recommend trying it. So if you, you do, you. If, you've, if you've been shot by an arrow and your first thought is, oh, my God, where is the Dittany of Crete? Um, <laughs> yeah. Good on, uh, I mean, good on you for remembering, but I would yeah. just probably be screaming curse words. Right. I'd probably be crying a lot. Someone uh, should call the hospital. Right. We have 911 now, or I guess, what is it? 999. 999. <laughs> Which sounds Jinxie so silly. JC owe me a Coke, Shannon. Oh my God, you're right. Um, Dittany of Crete also makes an appearance in the Aeneid when Venus uses the plant to heal Aeneas. So again, kind of like a big deal. And then finally, we can't talk about Greek shit without old Zeusy boy making an appearance. Uh, oh, yeah. And in, in Greek mythology, Zeus gives the herb Dittany of Crete to the island of Crete as like a thank you gift. And Aphrodite is noted to have used the plant. And Artemis, a eh, we love her, was often depicted crowned with a wreath of Dittany of Crete. So kind of a big deal. Um, Dittany Crete, uh, Dittany of Crete does exclusively grow on the island of Crete. I talked about that in the oregano episode, but I realized I should maybe reiterate that. That's where it's naturalized in. Um, so even today, though, like while Dittany of Crete is like super prized, but also hella protected by European law. So it's a big deal. So this plant is an herbaceous perennial. It has multiple like six to 12 inch branches on a single plant. And they have all of these like super cute, round, soft, fuzzy gray leaves growing from the stems. Like it's very cute. If you haven't seen it, give it a Google. It's precious. And the white down covered leaves really like highlight these beautiful like six to eight inch, like pale pinkish purplish flower stalks that bloom during the summer. And hummingbirds apparently like go nuts so crazy for these. And I saw pictures of the flowers. Um, I don't grow Dittany of Crete, but when I looked at the flowers, I was like, all I want is to see those in like a dried flower arrangement. So, yes, 
I mean, or you could use them for your magic, but we'll talk about that later. Um, so you want to grow it. You don't live on like the island where Dittany of Crete is naturalized and you don't want to break European law. So this is a plant that's going to need full sun exposure, like most of our herbs. The seeds can be sown in early spring or you can do root division um, in the spring or in the fall. Seed germination takes about two weeks, and this is one that you'll want to take like a bit of care with. So, you know, cover your seed planting container with plastic wrap to create like a little greenhouse effect to get that humidity up in there. Um, you can also grow new plants from cuttings, which you can take when the plants are like about eight inches tall total. So just like pot the cuttings up into individual containers and like baby them, you know, don't let the soil totally dry out until the roots are well established. Um, in my case, if I'm trying to propagate anything that way, that's going to involve a lot of cayenne over the top because uh, the squirrels give zero fucks in Park La Brea and they're on their fuck shit again. Like, I'm so mad. I, the squirrels and I. Anyway, uh, this plant isn't choosy about soil. Remember, it like grows in super rocky areas of the Mediterranean. So it's really not a diva. Like, this would be a great one to plant alongside like lavender and sage because once it's established, it also like, doesn't require much water at all. Um, so herbalism properties. Again, I'm not a doctor. None of this constitutes medical advice. Please talk to your physician before you embark on any herbal re like regimens. Uh, so ancient physicians like loved this plant to speed up birth and make birth less painful, allegedly, which sounds like something that men made up. Um, maybe I'm wrong. But and of course, uh, for arrow injuries, you know, just to shove it on out. Uh, again, if you have been arrowed, go to an emergency room. Although uh, I'm see, I'm seeing like a connection, you know, apparently Dittany of Crete is great if you just need to push something out of your body. Right. I mean, that's the vibe. Uh, so nowadays, though, like in herbalism, it's like mainly used for uh, bacterial diseases. Think like sore throat, GI infection, like skin inflammation, issues like that. Uh, and it's mostly used as a tea, but you can make an infusion and apply it like directly to your skin or apply the clean moistened leaves directly to the area. Again, wash them first. If you got a wound, you know, it's not think the time about, for Think dirt. about the stuff, people. I mean, it's common sense, but. We trust you, but. Uh, so. One of the best things, though, if you have like one of those like shitty coughs that you get with a cold that won't go away is to use like Dittany of Crete tea. So like brew up a nice hot cup of tea with like one to one and a half teaspoons of the dried herb. Um, and like you can inhale the steam once it's fully steeped and drink it. And it's supposed to really help like soothe the cough and the inflammation there. Uh, an important warning if you are just buying like the plant either as a raw herb or, you know, just like an actual live plant from a seller online, someone that you're not familiar with, the most common Dittany that's sold is burning bush, which is a uh, dictumness albus, which is like a really pretty ornamental plant, but it's toxic and it shouldn't be used as an herbal remedy. So again, keep that in mind. Just be careful because Dittany of Crete is like a pretty rare plant like it only naturally grows on the island of crete you can find it um but with herbs that are not like as common you just have to be more careful when you're purchasing things online like you can end up with some sketchy shit uh like the number of times that i've seen like listings for monstera deliciosa seeds on etsy that are very obviously grass seeds it's like buyer beware um so on to the magic i'm really excited about this one uh Dittany of crete is a feminine plant associated with the planet Venus and the element water. Uh, and of course it's known for its use in love magic, which we just talked about, like all of the beautiful like questing. Um, interestingly though, a lot of its magical reputation that we're like, that's kind of like common knowledge these days comes from the Theosophical Society, which is like a Western esoteric group that formed in New York in the late 1800s. And this group had some like, Pretty well-known members, including the highly controversial Helena Blavatsky. Uh, the Theosophical Glossary is something that like gets quoted by a lot of, you know, old school wizards, which we'll talk about in a second. But in that, Blavatsky writes, the dictumnon is an evergreen shrub whose contact as claimed in the uh, in occultism 
develops and at the same time cures somnambulism. Mixed with verbena, it will produce clairvoyance and ecstasy. Pharmacy attributes to the dictum non-strongly sedative and quieting properties. It grows in abundance on Mount Dicta in Crete and enters into many magical performances resorted to by the Cretans even to this day. She also like goes on like a super poetic rant version of this in her book Isis Unveiled, which is something that some of you might be familiar with. And because of Blavatsky and like the theos- the theosophist influence, Alistair Crowley also details his use of Dittany Crete in a lot of his journals. Um, so he burned the plant to help him become invisible. Alistair Crowley was a really weird fucking dude. Uh, and as a source of magical power for his spirit. So in one of his journals, he talks about this time he tried to manifest the Gaetic Damon Buer, which is accounted in Magic Without Tears. But here he said, and I quote, we decided to use this as HPB, which stands for Helena Blavatsky, uh, once said that its magical virtue was greater than that of any other herb. So I just I just thought it was really interesting. I'm super personally super fascinated by like modern witchcraft history. Um, so, you know, a lot of like modern witchcraft practices that use Dittany of Crete come from like this lineage. Like that's where we're getting a lot of the information. So it's like said to be good for like promoting spirit sight. And it's included in a lot of like animating potions for crystal balls and scrying mirrors. And some smoke, like some folks still recommend like burning it and then looking in the smoke for spirits. Um, you can find it online in a few like incense blends from various vendors as well. And they're mostly related to like calling on spirits. Um, and Janet and Stuart Farrar also wrote about Dittany of Crete and included it in their incense blends to honor the Goatfoot God, the Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And you can find their recipe like all over the internet. Like this is shit you can find on Pinterest. Um, and just as an aside for anyone who doesn't know, the Farrars are like authors on books about Wicca and neo-paganism. Uh, and Janet Farrar was initiated into Alexandrian Wicca by the founders of that Wiccan lineage, um, Alex and, and Maxine Sanders. And Janet Farrar is like probably one of the most public faces of Wicca. Like she still guest lecture- lectures on like Wicca, neo-paganism and witchcraft in like North America and Europe at like universities and conferences, like all over the place. Like Janet and Stuart Farrar are considered kind of like authorities in Wicca. Um, so anyway, that was just like a bit of a detour. So you can totally use it for like work with spirits, with love magic. I think also it would be good for, like Nick said, it's like good for pushing things out. So if you are trying to do some sort of like magic to expel something from your life, like maybe you've got like this relationship that you just like can't get over, right? You know, kind of like, sort of like cord cutting, I think would be the vibe. Yeah, I, you know? I, I feel like cord cutting would be such a vibe here. Especially yeah, with yeah. like the the Venus association, where it's like, yeah, 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 it's like good for love, but also like getting rid of love when it stops working. Um, <laughs> so my sources today were gardeningknowhow.com, European Medicines Agency, live-native.com, otherworld-apothecary.com, and of course Cunningham's Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs. Well, snaps, snaps for Dittany of Crete. Right. And I know that was like a bit of a detour into like magical history, but um, especially for people on our Patreon, Nick and I are definitely thinking about maybe doing some magic history episodes, which I think would be super fun at some point. So if that's something you guys are interested in, or if you have like specific requests, let a girl know. Um, So I am very excited to talk Ooh, about I, a new this. And it's like we're doing this during the spookiest of seasons. So And he is the spookiest of gods. Uh so as I'm sure everyone knows, Anubis is the jackal-headed god who presides over the embalming process and accompanied dead kings in the afterworld. So really like perf for spooky season. Um Anubis is actually the Greek version of the name. And moving forward, I am going to attempt 
to use the name that ancient Egyptians would have used, which is Anpu. Um, and Anpu is an extremely ancient deity, and his name appears in the oldest mastabas of the Old Kingdom and the Pyramid texts. And since he is one of the oldest gods, there are like a few inconsistencies over time with his lineage. It kind of like shifts a little bit. Um, but, you know, initially he was seen as like the son of Ra. So like the sun god, like Ra is like the OG head of the head, like deities in Egyptian lore. Um, but as time progressed and like Osiris grew in popularity and the cult of Osiris really took off, Anpu's stories were kind of incorporated into that larger mythos. So nowadays, like most of us are familiar with the story of his birth as like a bastard child of Nephthys and Osiris. This story, just like, by the way, comes from the Greek historian Plutarch. So there's a lot to unpack with like the relationship between Greece and the entire Western world's understanding of Egyptian mythology. Um, we cannot begin to like fully unpack all of that but I think it's just something to sort of keep in mind as witches when we're like studying deities especially if they're people we want to work with I always try to like find as much direct source info as possible because for a lot of these things they are through like so many various like it's like the telephone game um again that's not always possible but especially for people like the Egyptians, who are also still a fucking living people, um, you can find info about Anpu instead of Anubis. So um, there is, in this story, after the murder of Osiris at the hands of his brother Set, Isis sets out in search of his body, which had been enclosed and sent down the river, as we discussed in our Isis episode. We go like really into this story in the episode where I cover Isis. Um, and during her search, she found out that Nephthys had a child with Osiris and the story like Nephthys like kind of tricks Osiris and then gets knocked up. Nephthys was scared that Set would find out, you know, because Set was her husband. And since, you know, he murdered his brother, clearly he doesn't have a lot of chill. So it makes sense that she'd be a little bit worried about her murderous husband finding out. She's just a um, little concerned, you know. Right. So, you know, she abandoned her newborn child like you do. Uh, and then he was adopted and raised by jackals. Later, though, since Isis is like the mother figure in Egyptian folklore, she found the kid and she adopted him and she named him Anubis in the Greek version. Um, and he served as her loyal protector from that point on. So after Osiris's body was discovered, though, his shitty brother set start about like, like plotting to steal it back again, because this whole story is about Isis trying to like find Osiris's body and then like put it all back together so he can like go through to the afterlife. Right. Um, so during this like embalming process, as Isis is trying to like fully lay Osiris to death um, during this time, Osiris's body was kept in a wabbit. And the story notes that Ampu left the wabbit every night. So Set used that to his advantage and he transformed himself into Ampu and strolled right past the guards, but he didn't get far because Ampu was on that shit and got right after his uncle. And uh, so to try and ward off Ampu, uh, Set turns himself into a bull. But since Ampu is, again, a fucking jackal, he doesn't give a shit and he catches him anyway. And once Set is captured, Ampu castrates him and imprisons him. And Set was a lot of things, but he wasn't a quitter. So he escaped again and attempted to steal Osiris's body again, this time in the form of a big cat. Uh, that failed, and Ampu punished him by branding him with hot irons. Uh, and then Set turned himself into Ampu again, was quickly caught, and punished again. And then finally he makes his last attempt. Ampu was just, like, done with that shit, and at that point he kills Set, flayed his skin, and set his body on fire. Uh, so after he puts on the flayed skin, Ampu just waltzes into Set's camp, and decapitates the entire army with a single slash of his sword. So that's very Buffalo Bill of him to wear the right? skin. I love that. It's like reduce, reuse, recycle. You know, <laughs> fast so, fashion is ruining this planet. So absolutely, really, we need to get back to the time where we all just like murder our uncles and use their skin for leather. 
come on people it's 2021 really though absolutely um <laughs> so there are lots of like other stories but i feel like this is one of my favorites because it it does kind of like first of all it's very sat one appropriate it's metal as fuck but i think it also like encapsulates like a lot of the areas that anpu or anubis is like said to rule over um so like based on the story alone you can see why he's like considered the god of death the god of mummification the god of embalming the god of the afterlife cemeteries tombs and a mother fucking underworld the whole thing anpu is like the god of everything right um he also nbd happens to be the psychopomp who guides souls from this world to the next guards the door to the Hall of Judgment, and is Osiris's right-hand man in the ritual of weighing the hearts of those souls who have entered the afterlife. So, kind of a fucking big deal, that's a, man. That's a big job. That's, that's many big jobs. Uh, so, there are a lot of witches who work with Ampu or Anubis in their modern practices. He is a super powerful deity. So, I would always, of course, with deities, like, Suggest proceeding with caution, like recommend by starting with reading a lot about them, trying to get to know them more, but especially with like big deal deities. I'm like, just, you know, respect, respect, respect is due. Um, His cult was also like super widespread, but he isn't like the lead in too many Egyptian myths, but there is still a lot of him out there. You just have to do like research, right? Um, So if you want to honor him on your altar, you could use things like black or gold altar cloths or candles. And of course, depictions of him or depictions of jackals. He's said to enjoy offerings related to mummification, things like mummified dolls and figurines. He also likes dog related objects like collars and toys, etc. Um, I wouldn't go super cutesy here, though. Like he is still a god. Respect. Um, I also like this idea of honoring him by working with dogs. So like volunteering at an animal shelter, like walking the shelter dogs, you know, making like financial gifts to shelters that take care of dogs. Um, You also can't go wrong with a good incense blend. Myrrh is said to be very appropriate for him. Uh, Basically all deities appreciate libations. So like wine and beer are good offerings. Finally, black is his favorite color. So you can honor him by wearing black and incorporating it into your ritual space, which is an easy task for most witches. Uh, as far as like what to work with him on, Anpu is like clutch for shadow work. Like as the god of death and the underworld, that's his jam. He's also been through like his fair share of trauma. So I think that it makes sense to work with him on things like shadow work um, because there's also like there's the digging things out, the like excavation side of shadow work, and then the healing part of shadow work. And Ampu seems like he would be great for both facets of it. Um, he is a fierce protector. So think about like everything he did just to keep Osiris's body safe, right? So some people call on him for ritual protection or to ask for justice against those who have wronged them. Like, be wary here. I'm not your mom. Make good choices. Um, And he is, of course, a great deity to call on for work around death. So, like, if someone you love passes away, you're working through the grieving process, like, Ampu could be really great there. Um, He is also considered the guardian of the lost and lonely. So everything I've read, it seems like most people uh, who call on him do seem to, like, have a pretty good luck getting him to pay attention. Um, One article I read by a modern worshiper also said that... uh, Anubis tends to be much more gentle than other deities associated with death. So I can't confirm it myself, but it makes sense to me, like based on the mythology. So my sources today, ancientegyptonline.uk, mythopedia.com, otherworldlyoracle.com, patheos.com, and specifically an article by Charlie Larson called Light and Shadow, Anubis, God of the Modern Age. Ooh, Right. That sounds fascinating. Um, no, and I love that we got to hear that side of the story as well, because we like barely kind of dipped our toes in it when we were talking about like sun worship. Yeah. So it's like we we yeah. I, we really hit all around Anubis. And it's like we finally filled in the donut hole. 
Yeah, exactly. It's like we were all around the edge. We rimmed Anubis for a while. So I guess on that note, we wanted to like kind of have a brief, not too long because we, you know, we don't have all the time, but like it's been a year, a full year. Yeah, we did a whole year, you guys. And now we're doing Patreon and we've gotten so much better. Like, oh, my God, I go back to and listen to the first couple of episodes and I'm like, wow, that's that's called growth, honey. I'm proud of us. Like. We've also made some really great friends. So many of you guys are like actual friends now, which is awesome. I feel like it's been so good for my craft. Like, oh, yeah, I've learned so much. I feel like we kind of plugged in on this one because I feel like we were both very much like solo practitioners. And it's like plugging into the community by making a podcast has been it's like it's like the that that most ass backwards way of doing it like but it has been it's been good for both of us absolutely and yeah i think i think it's like there's been so many interesting things but one of the things i wanted to talk about here was that all of the little surprises along the way like finding out that nobody knows who the fuck green man is they just made up some shit based on what he looked like on a church yeah. Um, and it's like, oh, I really, you know, it's like all these weird little surprise, like Mabon, you know, like Mabon is the name of a hero. And they were like, well, we need another Sabbath to fill in the wheel of the year. Oh, it's Mabon. Uh, yeah. So we're just going to go with Mabon, uh, even though there's no text connecting Mabon to this holiday. Uh, yeah, I feel like it's also been really interesting to just especially with the deity profiles, it's like the more that we learn about certain deities and, you know, various practices, it's like, I feel like it starts to make the way that modern witchcraft has been formed make more sense. Like it's like, we're looking at all of the individual puzzle pieces. And also I, you know, it's like, I'm definitely a lot more sure in my conviction of like a more animistic spirituality where I feel like yeah. a lot of these spirits that we talk about are like one in the same and like they probably don't give a shit what we call them. No, probably not. I feel like if you were um, like a cosmic no. entity, you absolutely would not care. Because uh, it's like some sometimes you're like, wow, how are these two entities, these two deities like that are separated by time and cultures like in charge of the same shit? And that's really where I'm like, that is just the same spirit in a different hat. I swear to God. Right. Uh, It's like, that's the same person. Well, I think that brings us, we're so close to the bitter end. I wish we could do this anniversary special forever. Um, Right. But alas. But alas, we do have, you got that special, you got that special tarot scope going today. So I do and i thought it made sense you know this is a special episode doing a special tarot scope so this is for just like our listeners all of you guys uh and since we have decided that wands and fronds fully support Samhain as the witch's new year i wanted to pull something as like a message for the coming year right and so for me uh i again am using my herb crafter tarot deck so i drew the 10 of earth which is represented by Horsetail. And this card is really like an invitation for you to reach deep inside of yourself to like find your strength and tap into the ancient wisdom that is literally in your bones. Horsetail is a relative of a 400 million year old plant. And like this plant, you come from a great lineage. Deep in your ancestry, like even if your immediate relatives, you don't feel this way about them, like deep in your ancestry, there are wise people who like understood how to work with plants and they understood magic. And like, that's how you're here today, because if they didn't know how to do that stuff, your lineage would have died. Right. (laughs) So you're literally like on the shoulders of giants, both your literal ancestors and like all of the witches that came before you. So. Over the next year, practice gratitude. 
you know, remember to reflect on all that you've been given and to connect with your gifts. But also remember that you have like the wisdom of the ancients in your very bones. Like ritual magic is great, but your body is a literal living altar to your ancestors and to your magic. So when you're tired, when you're feeling out of it, just like look inside, tap into that and lean on your community, which also includes me and Nick. And I feel like this is just also a good reminder for those times when you don't feel magical, it's okay. Like you don't always have to be doing Insta witch aesthetic. You no, oh my are God. made of magic. For, literally though, you guys. Like if you're doing magic in Tupperware containers, you're still doing magic. Like yeah. get that Insta shit out of here. Yep, it counts. It totally counts. Um. So yeah, so that's that's that. That's it. Um, we, we okay. So we've officially been on the air for a whole year. Um, for a full year, uh, we love all of you guys, and we are so excited to announce Patreon. Patreon. So, so where where can they find our Patreon, Shannon? Oh my gosh, guys, we are so good to you because we're keeping things consistent. Uh, you can find us by going to Patreon.com/slash Wands and Fronds Pod. And Woo! conveniently enough, our email address is wandsandfriendspod at gmail.com. I'd love a lewd letter or a correction Ooh. about what direction Sunwise is. Um, and then I believe our Instagram is also at wandsandfriendspod. So yeah. it's very easy to get in touch with us. We're doing uh, our we best. do answer, we do, we do get on Instagram quite a bit. Uh, I know I'm, I have it set to turn the notifications on. So you know, I mean, you can you can hit us up and you will you will hear from one of us for sure. And uh, hell yeah. So I think, you know, it's been a year. Y'all probably know we'd love it if you would give us a five star review or write a review, because I believe we are still waiting on some reviews to come in uh, because we are doing that contest. So anyone who yeah. leaves a review, I think we said before the end of the month. Yeah, I think before the end of the month, I think we can announce it on, let's announce it on Samhain. Yeah. So yeah. Um, if you leave a review, if you write us a review on Apple Podcasts, um, you will be entered for a tarot reading by us. Hell yeah. What a fucking by treat us. for you. Uh, and if you want to support us monetarily through Patreon, yeah. um, there's there levels, are lots of you goodies. There's there's goodies and there's more goodies coming. So, um, so we were talking about some of the segments that we have in mind. Um, we do have a very good one lined up to do an interview uh, with my friend who currently lives in a haunted house. Um, I know we have an interview lined up with a, a, uh, a crafting person who is integrating witchcraft into their arts and crafts. Um, so I think that's going to be fun because I, I think there's a lot of crossover. And um, I, I I was thinking about doing some like history based segments that are going to be more uh, on the Patreon. So it's going to be things like uh, like our like the magic they use in Arthurian legends. Um, I was thinking it'd be really cool actually to do the mythology of the constellations so like because you know it's like even like the non-zodiac constellations a lot of them are have like myths behind them um so yeah. like for instance like the pleiades is there's like a whole cool story about that um and so we're gonna we're gonna do ep episodes like that because i think it's it's one of those things where it's like a lot of that ties into magic like it's yeah. not it's not witchcraft, but it's like knowing the myths behind the constellations. I mean, it's like you look up at the night sky and that it's it's really a story. Um, so stay tuned for things yeah. like that. So many goodies to come. But to all of you beautiful witch bitches out there, what do we say, Nicholas? We say we say blessed be witch bitches and have a have a good sound, y'all. I think this is I think this is gonna be a good one. I'm like really feeling very I'm really feeling a lot of uh abundance this month. So I'm like 
I really want to put on a good sound spread, so. Blessed be, bitches, and happy anniversary. Goodbye. Happy anniversary. Bye now. Hold on, I need to plug in my laptop. I just realized my laptop's not plugged in. You're so pretty, Shannon. Oh my god, thank you. Um, When I was growing up, my Nana would always tell me that you could be smart or you could be pretty. And so Nick just insulted me. (laughs) But that's okay. I had it coming. I forgot to plug in my fucking laptop.